0: Well, good morning, everyone. For our guests, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team here, and we're very glad you're with us today. Uh, With uh, us having all those kids and families here yesterday and being mindful that school is about to start for both those in school and maybe some of you here are part of a homeschooling network, we'd like to, um, at least this morning, have some prayer with you in regards to all that. So, If you're a student headed back to school, maybe you're you're already in school, perhaps you're a teacher, maybe you're a bus driver, you're involved in administration in some way, Uh, whatever the case may be, uh, we'd like to pray with you right now. And so if you fit, if you're on the school board or anything like that, if you fit involved in any educational process uh, that's about to step in, you're about to step into it or you have in the last few days, homeschooling included, would you stand please and let's pray for these people, okay? Kids, everybody, teachers. All kinds of situations, okay? Let's pray. If you would grab the hand of those beside you, okay, so that we can pray. Lord, for these who have stood here today, we're aware, God, that um, for some, uh, particularly university students, school has already started. For others, God, uh, in the public school system or in parochial schools, uh, things are about to get underway in the next few days. Homeschooling, God, is parents are making plans and making their networks come together and... For all those students, God, we ask that you give them minds of um, great receptivity to understand how the world around them works. Place them in settings where relationships are going to honor you, we pray. Lord, for teachers and administrators and bus drivers and cooks and people who work in the buildings and all the various kinds of support personnel, we ask, oh Lord, that you would graciously give these people, these adults, God, who have responsibilities that sometimes can be like pretty almost overwhelming at times when they learn in the lives of the situations and homes of some of their students, God. It can be, uh, there's great moments and there's difficult moments. And when they have to effectively find ways to say to students, you're doing well or you're not doing so well. God, we ask that your, your presence would be in the lives of our schools and our learning environments uh, in the coming months, and we pray this in Christ's name, Amen, Amen. Thanks, everybody. You may be seated. Uh, I'd like to um, just remind you before we step into Scripture this morning that last fall uh, we, as a congregation, said that we were going to figure out a way to reach ten percent of our community who didn't know Jesus, and could we f- get engaged in that sort of evangelism process, and could we invite other congregations into that with us? You helped us fund that um, to date in terms of the Empower campaign. You've given more than $300,000, so thank you for that. That's really cool. And um, we also said that one of the things we wanted to do was not only empower other churches, and but also empower you to know how to respond to the questions that people might have. About the story of Jesus Christ. That's why we're looking at the book of Romans right now this month, particularly. But coming out of this sermon series, we're going to step into another sermon series that is specifically designed for your friends and family members who might have questions about faith. We um, we approached other congregations in the city, and we you may have seen the news in the uh, news article in the paper yesterday. Twenty one churches around the community are joining us in this endeavor. And as you leave today. Uh, you're going to have some ways in which you can begin to let your neighbors and your friends know about this. As a matter of fact, this series is called Room for Doubt. It will give people an opportunity to ask questions about Christianity that maybe sometimes they think are off. You know, you can't ask these questions, and we would say, yes, you can. So you're going to get this as you leave. As a matter of fact, we're going to make it really hard for you to leave and not get one. There are going to be people at every door, and unless you sneak out the back, backstage here, you're going to get one of these, okay? And we want you to put it in your yard, and uh, may I suggest that you put it perpendicular to the street? Did you catch me on that? Because if you put it parallel to the street, you'll be reminding yourself from the front window... <laughs> Whereas if you do it this way, everybody will see it both ways. And I know this is kind of freaky. It's kind of scary to go, okay, I'm putting it out there that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and that there's this event coming up where people are going to ask questions, have the, we're going to respond to questions like this. What about what the fact that Jesus said he's the only way? In a, in a multicultural world, what do we do with that? Or, or the Bible, is it really God's word? Is there really a God? We're going to take on some topics like that. And so we want you to get ready for this. Take one of these, put it in your yard. When people say, what's the room for doubt? You go, I'm doubtful that I, don't know, that I know enough about it, but it's coming. <laughs> all right? So we look forward to you doing that. Can, can I get you all to buy into this? It's going to go perpendicular to the street. Or, unless you really need to remind yourself that it's coming, you can put it this way and you can look out the front window, but nonetheless, all right? And we'll see how that all goes in the days ahead. All right, take your Bible, please, and turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be shooting to get to Romans chapter 8. It'll take us a moment or two to get there. But before we do that, um, there'll be some other scriptures you see on the screen as well that we'll get to before we get to Romans 8. I, um, I was working outside yesterday in our yard on the side of the yard where it, it faces the east. It was early in the morning and it was, I mean, I was right up against the wall of the house and so it was br- brutally hot. And I was literally, my shirt was soaked through. And I'm telling you, I did this. I, I, I had a lovely drink of Diet Coke. Some of you are going, this isn't right, Wayne. Are you going to drink this in front of us? You bet I am. <laughs> you bet I am. You want to hear it? Isn't this lovely? Let me ask you this. There's nothing better than a cold drink on a hot day, right? When you've been outside working, nothing better. A little bit of ice in there. Cold, cold. I mean, Why do we put ice in our drinks? And when did we start doing that as a, as a, as a people? I mean, think about that. That's really an, a new phenomena if you think about human history. I mean, how often have people had ice available to put in their drinks? We have refrigerators that can make ice, but that's really, that's, all, that's an invention that's only about 180 years old. A matter of fact, can I tell you why we put ice in our drinks? There was a fella in 1842 in Florida. His name was Dr. John Gorey. His little town that he lived in faced a problem in that it was right beside a swamp. And every summer, uh, mosquitoes would multiply in the swamp. And malaria was rampant in Florida at the time. And so he would have all these patients every summer who would get malaria from the mosquitoes and they would die. The primary reason they would die, among others, was that their fevers would get so high, and he had no way to cool them down. He had a brilliant idea. He said, if only I could get some ice from New England, I could literally suspend the ice from the ceiling and cool the room down. And he tried that, and it worked. He put these cylinders of ice in the ceiling. They blew fans across it, and they were able to drop the temperature in the room by some 20 degrees, and consequently patients survived. Brand new thinking. One way to effectively deal with fevers is to cool the room. That was new knowledge. Where did it come from and why did he do that? And where, in 1842, where would you get ice anyways in Florida? I mean, it's hard to get, I mean, it doesn't grow naturally, if you will, in Florida. It doesn't, maybe a little bit, you get this much ice, maybe in the winter in the northern parts of Florida, but not down where he was, how was it that he was able to get ice to Florida? Well, some four decades before that, there'd been a young man by the name of Frederick Tudor, T-U-D-O-R, 17 years of age, who grew up in one of the more wealthy families in Boston. And he had an older brother by the name of John, and John got very ill. John was 20 years of age. This is in the year 1800. And so, as the family had some means, um, they approached the physicians of Boston and said, what should we do about John's illness? And the prescription was, you need to move him to a warmer climate to see if he can survive there. So, John's father charged young Frederick at 17 with the responsibility of taking his sick brother to the Caribbean to spend some time down there and see if the warmth would would heal him. So, they chose to go to Havana, Cuba. They went to Havana, dressed in their Boston finery, and sweltered in the heat, as you can only imagine. Dying and wishing for something cold like they would have in New England in the winter. Young John died. Frederick never forgot the experience of being in that sweltering heat of Cuba. And those of us who were there just a few weeks ago, we know how hot Cuba can be. It was burning hot down there. It was a wonderful experience, but it was hot. And he got back to Boston and he had this brilliant idea. You know, those people down in the Caribbean, they know nothing about cold. What would it be like for me to be able to s- send ice to, to Cuba? Ice happens naturally. Nobody has to pay to make ice in New England in the winter. Is there a way in which I could get that ice from New England in winter down to the Caribbean and thus sell something that I could get for free and make a ton of money? 17 years of age, quite a thought. A few years later, after the death of his brother and the grieving process was through, he bought a ship, paid some $4,500 for it, and shipped a bunch of New England ice down to Cuba. The Cubans had never seen ice before and had no interest in being that cold anyway. And he failed miserably. He ended up in debtor's prison. In the process, though, he did figure out how to transport ice from the cold to the hot and how to keep it preserved without the use of refrigeration. Namely that if he put ice in big chunks in the hold of ships and he pushed all that ice together so there was no air in between them at all, in between the blocks, and if he covered the whole thing with something else that was free in New England, namely sawdust, they didn't know what to do with all the sawdust they created from chopping down trees. If he covered the whole thing in sawdust, he could literally keep ice in the holds of ships for months at a time, well into summer. But nobody really paid attention until 1842 when Dr. John Gorey needed some ice down in Florida. And suddenly, the man's dreams that caused him to go to debtor's prison made some sense. And thus, this young 17-year-old who figured out how to get ice to Cuba was able to actually save the lives of patients who were suffering from, from malaria in Florida. But that whole idea sent him to prison, debtor's prison. And suddenly, going... I mean, what's that got to do with Romans? And you know, you're not a great historian. Start preaching. Okay. So, so, so here's, here's what I would... Uh, the question as I was looking, reading that story this week, it ca- occurred to me. I wonder what it was like for Frederick Tudor as a young man in his 20s to be in debtor's prison. Going, I had this brilliant idea that's going to work and is going to change history because after I'm done with it, people are going to put ice in their drinks because there's nothing better today in our 21st century than a cold drink with ice in it or an umbrella in the Caribbean, right? We don't think of drinking a cold drink without ice in it now because of young Frederick. But he ended up, that idea took him to prison. And this occurred to me What was he thinking when he was in prison going, man, I got this great idea. And that's just, it just, if only people would realize how great it could be. And yet here I am faced with this struggle. Why am I telling you that today? Well, I want to, I want you to see from the book of Romans, I want you to see the possibilities that can occur in your life if you're willing to persevere in the midst of struggle. Look with me on the screen. Romans chapter 5. This is what we see. That it's important that we as people understand what struggle does in our lives. Romans chapter 5 says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, so we've been talking about in the book of Romans how God works in us. And one of the great things is that we get to experience God and have all this glory of God around us. If you will, we boast in that. We're glad of that. And then he goes on to say, "We also glory in our sufferings." I don't know if I've ever gloried in my sufferings. Have you? You are in debtor's prison. You had this great idea, and it didn't turn out. We glory in our sufferings because we know that our sufferings produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Some of you go, "Man, can I get to the hope part with all this without all the suffering? Can I get there without the perseverance? Can I get there without the character?" Well, let's see what Romans has to say about that. Today, I want to spend some time with you in Romans 8 and want to remind you what we're doing in this series as we look at the book of Romans. Again, it's a case that we're trying to give you some language. Now, in preparation for Room for Doubt, when you're inviting your friends and they want to know what the gospel, that word, is all about, what does it mean? Well, it means that God's grace is all over you. you, Romans says in a big nutshell, you can't earn your salvation to heaven. It comes to you freely as a gift from God. But I've told you that this book is a difficult book to read because it's more or less a legal document. You've got a whereas, 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 and then you get to a therefore. Next week, we're going to get to a therefore. I want you to read through chapter 12 next week. So start in chapter 9 this week and read through chapter 12. And. We'll see what we can learn together because the whole idea is to give you some language. We said that when we, if we were going to empower the city, then we had to empower you as individuals as part of the life of our church. And this is, this is what our, we're striving for, whereas, 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 therefore. And you're asking, whereas Wayne is talking about ICE and whereas Wayne is talking about John Gorey and, and Florida and so forth, and he's going, Why? Well, because I want to see if I can get you to answer this question. Why is there struggle in your life at times? And what are you going to do with it? With that in mind, in light of the fact that we glory in this suffering, apparently, what does Scripture say? Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And you go, well... Okay, sort of, maybe. Okay, I'm going to believe that my glory in the future, that the way in which life is going to turn out both now and eternally is going to be really good. But if you only knew how difficult it is right now, good news, great news, my present sufferings are going to be eclipsed by glory. But right now I don't feel it in any way because my great idea of shipping ice to Cuba was brilliant and all it got me was debtor's prison or... The care that you extended to your family with such meticulous compassion was thrown back in your face. Your career choices that you made that were really designed to help your fellow workers or your fellow employees, all that decision brought... They simply mistrust you now and they heap scorn on your head. Or for some in the room, you've done your best for years to live health in a healthy way and you've eaten right and you've exercised and now all you've got is a bad knee or all you've got is this recent dire diagnosis from the doctor that says you're going to have a chronic medical problem for a long time. And you go, man, why is that happening when I didn't plan that? And okay, so maybe all this suffering is going to be better in the future, but it's really ugly right now. Look what Romans 8 verse 17 says. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We've been talking about that for the last few weeks. How wonderful it is that God in grace has made us children of his through the work of Jesus Christ. And we love all that stuff. But then there's this business. If we're co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we all may also share in his glory. I don't want to do the suffering part, God. Why is it that suffering has to preclude character so that character precludes perseverance so that perseverance precludes hope? Can't I just get to the hope part? Well, read on. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Grab your Bible, if you will, please, friends. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. Now that we've seen stuff on the screen, read with me from the page. We know, pardon me, verse 18. I consider... That our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation, that word creation, in Greek there, the word is cosmos, which means literally the cosmos, the entire universe, all that was ever, all that there ever is, the whole cosmos, waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice. But by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself. So this is all this conversation about all that's hoped about for the cosmos will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. What's all that mean? Well, the moment you start talking about creation, the moment you start talking about the cosmos or the universe, we we are reminded of the Genesis story in that when sin entered into humanity's story, then that sin in human story, in the human story brought about a significant change in the cosmos in the creation. Death and decay were introduced into a very perfect cosmos, and we are living out the results of that in our bad knees and our bad backs and the chronic illness and the struggles we have in relationships and even in nature itself. Einstein told us his big theory was that the universe is slowing down. Energy is decreasing. The universe's energy, even as it's going out, it's going out at a slower rate than it used to. And you probably are aware of this, I would imagine. You probably felt the slowing down of the universe in June of this year, didn't you? You knew. You could tell straight off, straight off the bat. So you're going, the guy is really weird. The guy is really Well, you know, June of 2015 was longer than any other June you've had so far. Did you know that? You didn't know. You, you're, you, here's what happened. The people in charge of clocks I don't know who the, I don't know that anybody in fourth grade goes, "I want to be in charge of clocks when I grow up, but nonetheless, <laughs> there are people in charge of clocks." OK? And so there are men and women of great scientific minds, and they figured out that the Earth is slowing down. Einstein told us this: The Earth's rotation is actually the gravity of the Earth is causing the rotation to grow a little bit slower every day to the tune that when we got to June of 2015, our clocks were inaccurate. Did you know that? And if you'd stayed up, I assume you stayed up on June 30th to have a longer day on June 30th, because when it got to be 11 o'clock, 11 p.m., with 59 minutes and 57 seconds, 58 seconds, 59 seconds to 12 o'clock, it didn't go that way in June this year. You stayed up to observe this, I'm sure. It went 11, 59, 57, okay, 58, 59. 59 happened twice in June of this year. It made a huge difference in your life. I know it did. <laughs> but what happened is the Earth is slowing down at two milliseconds. Per period. I don't know what the period is. I think a year or whatever. But it's slowing down enough that by the time we got to June 30th of this year, going into July, our clocks were inaccurate. And so, worldwide, they added a second back into your watch. Some little person came into your bedroom at night and went, <laughs> Here's my point the Earth is decaying, and we have it even here with the way in which gravity is messing with our, with our clocks. The Bible, Paul figured this out years ago. He said, the whole creation is waiting for its redemption when it's going to be made right again. And you can see this, I mean, in a variety of ways. Look at the nature in your backyard. You could have spent all day yesterday making the yard look absolutely beautiful. But if you don't go back and pay attention to it in the days ahead, all that beauty is temporary because nature is going to take over and it's going to be soon left to its own devices. Your house and your garden will become a mess. You can see this in a variety of places. For example, if you looked at the photos of the buildings in Detroit that in recent years as Detroit's population has decreased and people have just literally walked away from buildings, that those buildings, because no one's taken care of them, nature is literally bringing decay. The process of the universe is in decay is what Paul says in Romans. We see it with our own eyes and actually now science is confirming that. Look at that theater in the upper left where the ceiling is just literally caving in. Or the church down on the left. That beautiful gothic place. Literally the stones are crumbling because no one's paying attention. This is not vandalism. This is just the buildings doing this. Now the hotel in the middle, I think somebody turned that piano on its side. It didn't go that way itself. But but the point being, weather and time and even neglect cause decay. And Romans says that this is the case for the whole universe. The whole universe is waiting for redemption. It can only be a metaphor for human life, surely. Because the story of human life is that there are some events and some circumstances in a person's life that we say, I want this to be redeemed. And Paul says the way it's going to be redeemed is the whole creation is groaning. And for some people, the only way in which they could describe the situation of decay and struggle and suffering is with groans. Again, look at verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, what do we do? Just like the creation, we groan inwardly we've got groans as well deep down within us deep within our bellies as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies not only is creation the cosmos looking for redemption but we in our own bodies we're looking for i don't want that chronic pain anymore for in this hope we were saved but our hope but hope that is seen is that pardon me that hope that is seen is no hope at all who hopes for what we already have but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently in the same way. In the same way that the creation is groaning, the Spirit helps, helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes through us, for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Let me ask you this. What life settings do you face that you say, I don't have words to even describe what it's like. Maybe you've faced them in the past. Maybe you've faced them right now. Maybe it's the health of your friend and you go, there is no way to describe to you the suffering that my friend has had and consequently the suffering that I feel on her behalf, on his behalf. Maybe it's your own health. Maybe it's your finances or maybe it's the present vocational setting. I wish I could explain to you how bad work is. Or I don't even have words to describe the chaos in my family right now. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Sometimes Paul says there's no way to uh, respond to that other than with this belly grunt, this groan way down here. And he says perhaps the only way to describe it then is groans that are similar to what the groans that women have during childbirth. And suddenly we talk about that and those of us of the male persuasion, we go, I'm backing away from that. I'm not stepping into that story. Men, we we are immediately at a disadvantage. But those of you who are mothers in the room, you know the pain and you know the groans. And if you were to ask a woman in the middle of childbirth, what's it like, they can't tell you. They go, get out of my face. Right? It's the vocalization of pain beyond words. Man, we watch the process of childbirth literally from the sidelines, and we're awed, we're overwhelmed, we're befuddled, and we're amazed, and we, we don't really know what to respond, we're, how to respond, we're kind of sometimes just stupid in the middle of it, and like, like um, when our daughter Jacqueline was born, our firstborn, um, when we were living back in Tulsa, and um, you know she, we, I watched Leslie go through 23 and a half hours of labor in the hospital, and I was just kind of like, Don't know how to respond to all of that. And then, okay, here's this little, lovely little child. You know, this is in the days... We did have electricity back then, but... (laughs) But we didn't have. I mean, we could have ice in our drinks even. But we didn't know what, what the gender of our babies ahead of time. So out comes this little baby girl, and I went out to the store and I bought this little yellow dress. The yellow was Leslie's favorite color, and we dressed that little girl in this little yellow dress, and we still have it. And uh, it was time to leave the hospital, and. Leslie's doctor comes in, and she's talking with Leslie, and there's Jacqueline in this little kind of tray thing that they've got her on wheels, and she's dressed in a little yellow dress. It was a tray. Who are we kidding? It was a tray. It was this plastic thing they had her in. I'm male. Get it? I'm male. I don't know how you describe everything. I've watched my wife groan, and I'm. Uh, what do you say? And so the doctor's talking. How's it going? Oh, it's going really well. And you guys headed? Yeah, you got a car seat? Yeah, it's in the car. It's ready to go. Leslie's parents have just arrived from out of town, and they are on their way. They're going to meet us in the lobby in about ten minutes. Great. And she goes, "Well, da 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 da. How's it going with nursing? I don't know what to say. I mean, what do I know about nursing?" And, and she goes to Leslie. She says something to Leslie. And I remember we're sitting on the edge of the bed, both of us, with the baby right in front of us and the doctor. And I'm looking up at the doctor. And the doctor goes, are you alternating? <laughs> and my immediate response was, doctor, I can't. So you are so embarrassed for me right now, right? <laughs> I just can't, I don't have it. Maybe other guys do, but I don't. <laughs> so who I'm just befuddled at the whole thing, and I don't have words to describe the process of childbirth. Women in the middle of it, all they can do is at times groan, right? There are joyous rewards in childbirth. But I want to remind you that those joyous rewards usually only come after a lot of groans. And some of the joys that are in front of you are only going to come after a lot of groans. Some of you are saying, I don't even have energy for the groans. Well, I've got good news for you. Read again verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. When you don't, have, you don't even have energy to go, I don't, not only don't have words, but I, don't, I can't even go, ah, oh, 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 I don't know what to, you, know, you can't even get that out. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through what? Wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Somehow or other, the Holy Spirit can groan through us, apparently. And as the Holy Spirit groans through us in a prayer that doesn't have words, then in fact, that prayer is in accordance with God's will for our lives. And so when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit apparently can pray through us with words that line up with God's will for our lives. You could call them, if you will, breath prayers. You've got a decision before you to do this or that. What medical treatment to choose or how to pray for your son. He's 33 years of age and he's still acting like he's 16. When's he going to grow up? And words don't describe adequately the emotion of your soul. So you let the Holy Spirit pray through you and it's like a cleansing breath that women use during childbirth. Breathing in the peace of Christ. Breathing out the words of the Holy Spirit that you don't need to necessarily understand. For some people, it's speaking in tongues, yeah. But if you don't have that gift, God. Do you know that's the Holy Spirit praying through you? Scripture tells us. It's crazy, isn't it? But that's the Holy Spirit praying through you in accordance with God's will. Look again. Fully congruent with God's will. We know that all things work that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. If God is working in your life and in the midst of it you're praying and you don't have the words but nonetheless I'm still going to pray and there are going to be groans at times. You know what? I'm, 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 and it's incongruent with God's will for my life. Then that's God's purpose. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Be reminded of this, that Jesus Christ who died, and more than that, he was raised to life. That same Jesus Christ right now is at the right hand of God and is interceding for you. That's really good news. That's where God's grace, this undeserved gift of God comes into play. That God is on your side. Remember that we've, we've been saying throughout the book of Romans that we're going to look at a number. Whereas, whereas, whereas to get to a therefore. Well hear this affirmation of... St- affirmation of faith today that as the Holy Spirit is praying through you and as the as Jesus Christ himself is standing at the right hand of God interceding before on your behalf hear this that whereas you were alienated from God whereas sin caused that alienation and whereas Jesus death covered that sin and whereas you are now forgiven whereas the Holy Spirit is praying through you oh like that and whereas Jesus is reminding God of your forgiven status therefore be mindful of this your heavenly Father knows your needs, and your faith is impacting heaven's conversations. Can you live there in the midst of struggle? In the midst of your struggles, God's grace is all, of you, all over you, because, friends, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. As a matter of fact, would you like to make that whereas statement with me, rather than being about other people, but make it about yourself? Read it with me. Whereas I was alienated from God, whereas sin caused that alienation, whereas Jesus' death has covered my sin, and whereas I am now forgiven, whereas the Holy Spirit is praying through me, and whereas Jesus is reminding God of my forgiven status, therefore my heavenly Father knows my need. My faith impacts heaven's conversations. You're not doing it alone, friends. You're not doing it alone. It seems crazy, I know. But in faith we say this is what we believe. If we believe that Jesus died for us, that his blood covers our sin, then let's let's run with that to the nth degree of how it carries us all the way and say, we believe that God is hearing our needs in Jesus Christ because otherwise, why did Jesus bother dying? If it only gets us halfway, it's not worth it. Look at what Romans 8, verse 35 says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, is there a setting that is so bad that you will not get to experience the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Will any of those separate us from the love of Christ? No, in all these things, Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors Through him who loved us. And then he lists some continuums. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, height or depth, nor anything else in all of the cosmos, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your life may be crummy right now. Fair enough. Call it as it is. Allow the Holy Spirit to pray through you in accordance with God's will. And don't be separated from the love of God. Friend, you and your situation, death, life, present, future, height, depth of emotions and daily, over the daily routines of life, your situation is known in heaven. It may feel like, man, the ideas that I had and the ways in which this struggle... The way I had thought about it before, it's almost like it's a pipe dream of sending Arctic ice to Cuba. And it's failed me and it's left me in a debtor's prison. Can I remind you that you don't know the end of your story yet? You don't. You'd say, well, my story is far more real than getting New England ice to Cuba. There are stories in this room today of struggle and pain and questions and debate about suffering. But I want to remind you, according to the scriptures we've just read, the Holy Spirit is fully mindful of those, bringing them to God, and Jesus is actually standing, sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on your behalf. And you don't know how it's going to end yet. Frederick Tudor sat in that prison as a young man in his 20s. His dream of sending ice to Cuba had failed, but really it didn't. Because his experience of putting that ice in those shipholds eventually paid off. He introduced ice to Cuba and to the Caribbean. They started doing this, putting ice in their drinks. We adopted it. One of the things that they did in Cuba was they took that ice and they chipped it up and they mixed it with milk and fruit and discovered ice cream. There's a brilliant thing right there. Four decades after that first visit to Havana and his brother's death, people were saved from malaria because of what he figured out. And in the long run, when he got out of debtors prison, he, after all the struggle and the pain, he persevered and eventually developed a whole industry called refrigeration and made $200 million in the process. You don't know the end of your story yet. I don't know. that I'm not going to suggest anyone here is going to make $200 million out of your suffering. But I am going to suggest to you. is that in the midst of your struggles right now. There's a new opportunity coming. And there are new days coming. And who knows what you have in mind might indeed change a nation's way in which they drink. Of nothing else. It's changing your future. Would you pray with me? Lord, I know lots of stories in this room right now. The stories of people who have pain and struggle and hurt. And there's plenty of them, God. For some of those, for some of the folk in this room, those stories are in play right now. For others, God, it's a place a situation where the story has kind of come to an end or Come to a resolution. In the midst of our pain, God, we sometimes don't like to say, well, this is producing character and character produces perseverance and perseverance is going to produce hope and we don't always like to get there. But in faith, we're going to believe for better days. In faith, we're going to believe that even when we don't have words to pray to you, that in those quiet groans, those belly moments within us, that the Holy Spirit is speaking through us. And God, we in faith, because we have placed our trust in the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, we're going to believe that he is interceding for us at your right hand. So God, give us hope. Give us expectations and plans for better days. Even, Lord, for those today who feel like they're sitting in a debtor's prison and they don't know how they got there. Oh, God in grace, cover us with your tremendous work. We don't deserve it. We get that. But thank you for your love. Thank you for your care. Give us courage for the events of this week, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.